Joshua chapter 6, I invite you to turn there this morning. We have the benefit of knowing what happens at the end of this story, so we kind of look over it at times, but they obviously did not have the benefit, the people who are in this battle. And so you could imagine the thoughts that were going through their head as they were thinking about the imminent battle. Would God follow through on his promises? Would all the people obey him as, as we have promised? Are we really going to be able to displace all these Canaanites and really attack them and, and, and uh, move them out of this, this land that God has promised? And so we come to a climax, really, in the book. What is going to happen is our thought, if we had never known the outcome. And so we will be reading Joshua chapter 6 this morning beginning in verse 1. Now Jericho, Jericho was tightly shut because of the sons of Israel. No one went out and no one came in. The Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and its valiant warriors. You shall march around the city, all the men of war circling the city once, and you shall do so for six days. Also seven priests Priests shall carry seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark, and then on the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall, sh shall blow the trumpets. It shall be that when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, and all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people will go up, every man straight ahead." So Joshua the son of Nun called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant, and let seven priests carry seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. And then he said to the people, Go forward and march around the city, and let the armed men go on before the Ark of the Lord. And it was so, that when Joshua had spoken to the people, the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the, the Lord went before and blew the trumpets, and the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord followed them. The armed men went before the priests who blew the trumpets, and the rear guard came after the ark while they continued to blow the trumpets. But Joshua commanded the people, saying, You shall not shout, nor let your voice be heard, nor let a word proceed out of your mouth until the day I tell you, Shout, and then you shall shout. So he had the ark of the Lord taken around the city, circling it once, and then they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. Now Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up, took up the ark of the Lord. The seven priests, carrying the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord, went on continually and blew the trumpets. And the armed men went before them, and the rear guard came after the ark of the Lord, while they continued to blow the trumpets. Thus the second day they marched around the city once and returned to the camp. They did so for six days. Then on the seventh day they rose early at the dawning of the day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. Only on that day they marched around the city seven times. At the seventh time, when the priests blew the trumpet, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. The city shall be under the ban. It, it and all that it is in it belongs to the Lord. Only Rahab the harlot and all who are with her in the house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But as for you, only keep yourselves from the things under the ban, so that you do not covet them. 
and take some of the things that are under the band and make ban and make the camp of Israel accursed and bring trouble on it. But all the silver and gold and articles of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted and priests blew the trumpets. And when the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted with a great shout and the wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city, every man straight ahead, and they took the city. They utterly destroyed everything in the city, both man and woman, young and old, the ox and sheep and donkey with the edge of the sword. And Joshua said to the two men, who had spied out the land, Go into the harlot's house and bring the woman and all she has out of there, as you have sworn to her. So the young woman, so the young men who, had, who were spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and her mother and her brothers and all she had. They also brought out all her relatives and placed them outside the camp of Israel. They burned the city with fire and all that was in it, only the silver and gold, the articles of bronze and iron, they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. However, Rahab the harlot and her father's household and all, all that she had, Joshua spared. And she has lived in the midst of Israel to this day, for she hid the messengers from Joshua, whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Then Joshua made them take an oath at that time, saying, Cursed before the Lord is the man who rises up and builds the city Jericho. With the loss of his firstborn he shall lay its foundation, and with the loss of his youngest son he shall set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. Now, uh, as you see on your handout here that should have been in your bulletin this morning, uh, we have three main parts to this story that, that Joshua records for us. The first thing that we, we will see is God's instructions for victory. We find that in verses 1 through 5. This city was really an impregnable force. It was, it was one of the greatest fortified cities in that day. We'll get to that later. But, but this was a very difficult city to attack because it was built up on a hill with a walled structure around it, thick walls, and so they had to attack the city being, being really in a very vulnerable uh, situation because this thing was built up on a hill. So we're going to see several things about this city as you see there, the first thing that we see is that it's a spectacular city. Now, we don't see this necessarily in this text, but we know from history and from other texts that this was a beautiful city. Remember, Jericho is, is down in the Jordan Valley, so it's actually about 1,200 feet below sea, sea level. And so they would get a lot of sun, not like being up in the mountains where there's all the snow caps and all those things. When you're down in the valley, you get a lot of sun. And so that's the way Jericho was. And we know also that it was supplied well with water. There was a natural spring that ran right through the city of Jericho. So it was a beautiful city. In fact, in Judges chapter 1, we find that it's called the City of Palms. And uh, as you know from the times that you've spent vacation where there are palm trees, those are typically beautiful areas to live in. So Jericho was first a spectacular city. And secondly, Jericho was a sophisticated city. Sophisticated city. And we find that in verse 2, that it had political organization. It says, The Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and the valiant warriors. 
You see, this is not just a group of nomads that just kind of happened upon this place. This is a, an established group of people who have their own king. We know from chapter 2 that there was the king of Jericho um, that, that called for these men to try to find the spies that were being hidden in, in uh, Rahab's house. So, so this is that king being referred to here, the king and its valiant warrior. So it was a sophisticated city. But what you may not know, and what I was surprised to find out when I studied this, was that, thirdly, it's a small city. It's a small city. Now, this city is raised up on a 70-foot hill, as I've mentioned before. And so if we looked down on it from above, it would look like an upside-down pear. Okay, that's the shape of the city. And basically, from north to south, it's 1,300 feet. And from east to west, at the widest point, it's only about 650 feet. And then at the narrowest point, it's only 65 feet wide. Not a huge city. In fact, it's only 11 acres. Once you get up on top, inside the main walls of the city, it's only 11 acres. That's 500,000 square feet. So to give you an idea, the average Walmart is about 100,000 square feet. Or maybe to give you a better idea, Oakland Mall is 1,500,000 square feet. So Oakland Mall is three times as big as the land area in the city of Jericho. We always think of Jericho as this monstrous city that's up on a hill. and, and, and uh, No, it's small. And so we, we would think, well, since it's that small, such a small city, then wouldn't it be easy to attack? Well, no, it is not easy to attack, to attack because number four, or D there in, on your outline, it was a secure city. A secure city. It was a walled city, as we see in verse 5. Verse 5 says, It shall be that when they make a long blast with the ram's horns, horn, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, and the people shout with a great shout, what happens? The wall of the city will fall down flat. That was the main reason why they couldn't get into the city, because of these walls. So what was it about these walls that made them so impregnable? Why were they so hard to, to get past? Well, from history we know that this city was, was, a means, uh, was a city that was very fortified. It was the most fortified city in all of the land of Israel or that time Canaan. And so it was an important city to conquer, and so you can see why it was important for Israel to conquer this city. Because it, it really was the security that the rest of the, the nation, or the, the land of Canaan, had experienced. They, they, were, they, they had this security that no one could stop them. They were, they were unstoppable. And mainly the reason that this city was that way is because of these walls. Now, according to archaeologists, as you see there on your sheet, the hill of Jericho was surrounded by a great earthen rampart or an embankment with a stone retaining wall at its base. It's kind of hard to see that picture up there, but basically here on the, the, on the right of your picture, is you can see some little people down there. Those, are, those would be the size of... of the, uh, the Israelites as they're walking around. So they have one retaining wall here that, that is about um, 12 to 15 feet high. And then on top of the retaining wall is another wall which is 20 to 25 feet high. 
And it's about six feet thick. So when they were standing at the base of it, they're looking up at 40-some feet above them to the top of the wall. They can't even see people. They can't see anything. This is a massive uh, ordeal that they've gotten themselves into. And then at the crest of the hill, which is over here on your left, is another wall. Now, the text doesn't explicitly say that there were two walls, but from... From the excavations that they've done on these cities, it, it appears like there are these two sets of walls. So even once they got past this first set of walls, they still had to get past the second set. And the second set, I say there, is uh, about 20 to 26 feet high as well, and 6 to 12 feet thick. So um, this was quite a challenge for them, wasn't it? To give you an idea of how big, big these walls are, the Great Wall of China is is uh, about 25 feet high. Have any, have any of you been to the Great Wall of China? Okay, a couple of you, good. I mean, that is a huge structure. I can imagine that, that when you stand there, that it must be just a, an incredible sight to see that huge of a wall. And this is what they were going up against. In fact, the Great Wall of China is about uh, 15 to 30 feet wide at its base, but at the top... It's, it's only about 9 to 12 feet wide, so it's similar to what the Israelites were facing here. So they've got this city raised up on a hill. Wouldn't it have been a lot easier if the, the city was down in a valley where it was below them to throw rocks or spears or something? But no, it was up on a hill. It makes it that much more difficult. And then it had these, like a great wall of China, wrapped around it. And that's why it was, it was a secure city. But not only that, either on your outline is it was a strong city verse 2 it says not only did Jericho have its king but also its valiant warriors so they had an organized group of men who were able to fight in battle they were trained to fight but despite its security and its strength God gives courage to Israel and he shows them that verse 1 they are a scared city. Look at verse 1. Now Jericho was tightly shut because of the sons of Israel. No one went out and no one came in. Turn back to chapter 2 and verse 11 and I'll show you that again. Chapter 2. This is Rahab talking to the two spies. And in verse 11 she says, When we heard it, basically how God had, had worked uh, in Israel. He, she said, when we heard it, our hearts melted, and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Now, despite their strength, despite their security in this city, they were scared. They were frightened. Why? Because they recognized the God of Israel was stronger than they. And that's why we find, as we talked about last week, that even though the Israelites were incapacitated after their surgery, they were basically four days in a very vulnerable position at their camp. They could have been attacked during that time. But we don't find them being attacked. And that's because God caused them to be scared. They were frightened. And we know also that they're frightened because, remember, Israel was eating of their produce. 
food that they ha- had um, planted and food that they had grown was there just outside of Jericho in the city of Gilgal. And what was Israel eating from? They were e- eating from Jericho's food. So you see, Jericho was shut down because they were afraid. They didn't even come out to get the rest of their harvest. They left it there. And so they were a scared city. <clears throat> but they, but God gave them a promise in verse 1 and 2. He, uh, verse 2 says, The Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and valiant warriors. When we look up at a city this huge with walls that tall and that thick, we think there's no way we can get by these walls. God says, is there anything too hard for me? Is there anything too hard for me? You may not be able to do that of your own power. In fact, no human force was able to conquer Jericho up until this point. But God could. And that's what Israel was counting on. They were counting on the fact that God would fulfill the promise that he had made to them. That he would allow Israel to displace the Canaanites, to move them out of that area by destroying many of them and sending others in retreat. But God had a demand, didn't he? In verse, verses 3 through 5, he tells what he wants done. And this is basically the obedience that he requires. So that is God's instruction for victory. And then the next thing we see in verses 6 through 21 is Israel's obedience to God's instruction. And the first thing that we see is that this city of Jericho was a surrounded city. It was a surrounded city. That's what God required of them. You need to surround it. Take all your, your men of war, your priests, and start walking around the city. Now, the, the people who were involved in this, this march around the city were, as I said, the, the men of war. Verse 3 says, You shall march around the city, all the men of war circling the city of once. So all these men who are 18 and older that were um, engaged in battle, they were the ones to be a part of this, this march around the city. Now, how big was Israel's army? Unfortunately, we don't know exactly from the scriptures all we can do is surmise, but we do know from chapter 1 that the two and a half tribes of Israel were about 40,000 men. They were about 40,000 men. So the whole tribe of Israel was probably a little bit more than 200,000 men. And so this is how many people would potentially be walking around the city. But the exact number is not, exact, not necessarily that important. Um, but we find also, besides the men of war, the, the army men, we also find that there are seven priests carrying seven trumpets. You heard this repeated throughout the, the passage as I read it. There are seven priests carrying seven trumpets of ram's horns. And, um, and then in addition to this, they brought the Ark of the Covenant. And I think from our study of their crossing of the Jordan, you should recognize that the purpose of the Ark of the Covenant was what? It was a symbol of God's presence, wasn't it? They, they had the, the pillar of cloud that, that directed them while they're in the wilderness and the pillar of fire by night. That was what directed them while they're in the wilderness. Now they have the Ark of the Covenant. 
And this was a symbol of God's presence. It, rec- it emphasized that, you know what, this conquest of Jericho, no matter how difficult it is, is actually, it's going to be a conquest of God. Although Israel is involved, it's actually God who's doing the work. It, as we'll see, that he is the one that actually causes it to fall. So how, I said that this city is only 500,000 square feet at the, the top of the hill, but how big is this at the bottom, and how long would it take to go around? Well, the whole city was probably less than a mile in circumference. We, we often think that, oh, this is like three or four miles that they're walking. But remember, on the seventh day, they walked all the way around the city how many times? So if it were three hours to, to walk around the city, if it took, uh, let's say it was uh, six or seven miles or, or whatever, it would, take, it would take 21 hours to walk around it that many times. Plus, they still had to go up and do what? They had to destroy all the people in the city and get all the, uh, the gold and the silver and those things. So it's not that big of a city. In fact, it's only, from, from my understanding, it's basically a mile in circumference. It would take about 20 to 30 minutes. And with this many people, it's, it's hard to even imagine that they could even pack them around this small city. They'd have to be, if they're in rows that were only three feet apart, they'd have rows of about 50 people. And so it would take a little bit of time. You wouldn't be able to walk in double time around a city with that many people spread out. You'd have to go at a pace of about two or three miles per hour. So it'd take about 20 or 30 minutes to go around. So to give you an idea of, of the size of this city, or the, the, really the smallness of it, um, when we drove to church this morning, we passed the, the Detroit train station. You know this uh, the Central Depot that's... Uh, they're trying to save and whatever. It's not being used, obviously. But back in the day, apparently it was this train station. This building is 500,000 square feet. And so it would be the equivalent of when they walked around the city of Jericho at the base of this mountain, it would be like walking around that huge building. And it doesn't seem like a whole lot, but it actually is, uh, is, would take probably, like I said, 20 or 30 minutes. So why did they have to go around the city so many times. They, they go around the six times, one time each of the first six days, and then seven times on the seventh day. It seems like it's a little too much. I mean, why didn't God just collapse the walls and allow them to go in and destroy all the people? Wasn't that the ultimate goal? Why not just do it right at the beginning? Why waste our time? Well, I think one of the reasons is, verse 4, that God commanded it. God says, also the seven priests shall carry seven trumpets uh, of ram's horn before the ark, and then on the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times. So the first reason why they needed to do it this many times was that God commanded, commanded it. It's that simple. Secondly, I think it highlights the need for Israel to obey God, even when it doesn't make sense. And Israel should have learned this by now. Um, They've had several opportunities to obey God, and God's given them another opportunity. But sometimes we don't like to obey God when it's that simple. We're just walking around the city. I mean, give me something exciting. It reminds me of the story of Naaman. Do you remember when Naaman had leprosy in 2 Kings chapter 5? What did he do? He went to Elijah and asked for him to heal him. But instead of him actually meeting up with the prophet Elijah, what happened? 
Elijah sent out a servant and said, go dip in the Jordan seven times. And what did Naaman say? I'm not doing that. That's crazy. Send me down the prophet. Give me something exciting to do. I mean, this isn't going to work. And Naaman's servant said to him, Naaman, if he would have told you to do these great miracles and all, and all these great works, would you have believed him? And he said, well, sure I would have. And he said, why don't you just obey him? This is a man of God. So Naaman ended up doing it. And what happened? He dipped in. And probably if the first time, he's probably thinking, why am I doing this? And by the time he gets to the sixth time, he's thinking, this is not going to work. But he gets to the seventh time, and he recognizes that simple obedience is often what God demands of us. Many times in our lives, we're looking for something spectacular that God wants us to do. Some huge event that we need to take part in. Some big ordeal or... or the way in which we get rid of our sin, we need to do it this, this really spectacular way, some, some great healing or something like that. But God often says, just follow me, one step at a time. It may not make sense. It may look foolish to your enemies. But I can tell you that when you simply obey me, when you put your trust in me, I can do great things for you. But we are often resistant to that sort of thing, aren't we? And so when I imagine this story, I think of the enemies looking down and, and almost in, in uh, humor, looking at these guys thinking, what is going on? But you know what? I think they were still frightened up there. When they saw this army coming around in battle and all they could hear was the sound of trumpets, for six days they probably thought, what is going to happen? What, is, what are they going to do to us? I mean, some of these people in Jericho may have even witnessed from their perched city the crossing of the Jordan River. They may have witnessed God's power in that. And so they were, I'm sure, still afraid. And uh, even though the army of Israel may have been embarrassed or felt a little foolish walking around doing something as silly as just walking around the city, they recognized that God was ultimately the one in control, and he's the one who commanded it. And you know what? We find that this is one of the great times in Israel's history. And we find that in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 30, where it tells us that Israel made the walls fall down because of their faith. By faith, Israel made the walls fall down. You see, if Israel had not obeyed God and said, No, we have a way in which we can throw a rope over the top and we're going to be able to pull ourselves up, we'll attack them that way. We'll just outnumber them. But no, they decided to obey God, and it was because of their faith that God caused the walls to fall down. So the second thing we see under their obedience to God's instruction, we saw that, that, that it was a surrounded city, that God required that it be a surrounded city. But, but then we see in verse 20 that now it's a smashed city. Verse 20, chapter 6 says, 
So the people shouted, and the priests blew the trumpet, and when the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted with a great shout, and the wall fell down flat, so that the people went into the city, every man straight ahead, and they took the city. Now, there are many ideas as to how the walls of Jericho actually came down. Some suggest that they were just built on some sandy soil, and so because of their weak foundation, they just kind of collapsed and fell down. Others suggest that maybe it was from the sound waves, the combination of the trumpets and the people shouting that the walls fell down. Other people would suggest that there was the, the combination of the vibration that they had in the marching in step and the shouting and the uh, blowing of the trumpets that the walls came down. But I think that's I think you recognize that that's just as silly as us all walking around this church building and jumping or yelling at the same time and, and getting this the walls to fall down. And these walls are not nearly as strong as, you can imagine, six-foot-wide walls, right, that are 26 feet high. These are some pretty strong walls. So I think that's a little bit ridiculous. Now, others would suggest that maybe it was an earthquake, now, this is a little bit more probable. The text doesn't say that it was an earthquake, but um, even if it were an earthquake, it would still have to be timed perfectly, wouldn't it? It was when they shouted that the walls fell down, according to verse 20. And not only that, remember that earthquake had to be, uh, it had to be effective only in a certain area because what happened to Rahab's house? Remember where Rahab's house was built? Chapter 2 said that it was built on the wall. It was built on the wall. Now, that could be on top of the wall, which is possible. But I would think that it probably means that it's built against the wall. It's built into the wall, into the fortification system. Whatever it is, the idea is when the, when the earthquake happened, if that's what took place, it would have to crumble everything except for where Rahab's house was. Pretty amazing miracle by God, isn't it? But it turns out that there are um, there are ample there is ample evidence that um, that this city wall collapsed and was deposited at the the base of the retaining wall. And after the city walls fell, the the, the difficulty for us is how did they actually get up? If they had a retaining wall of 15 feet, how did they get up into the city? And we know from chapter 20 that they actually did go up into the city look at the second part of verse 20 it said so that the people went up into the city they went up remember this is built on a hill so they had to go up they had to get over these walls and what happened i believe is that these walls actually tumbled outward and so it caused the stones to fall down outward and it made a natural ramp that they could walk up into because remember, this, this city is actually 70 feet above the ground on which they were walking. And so the, Isra the Israelites went up. And then after they, they went up, they were commanded to do what? They were commanded to destroy all these people, weren't they? Verse 21, we find that uh, this city was a sinful city. Verse 21 says that Israel utterly destroyed everything in the city both man and woman, young and old, ox and sheep and donkey with the edge of the sword. 
So the question that we, we should ask ourselves is why kill everybody? Why kill like the babies, the older people who have no way of defending themselves? And when we started this series, I gave you some reasons for that. But let me review those because I think this is important to help our understanding so that we don't think that God is some sort of arbitrary ogre up there that's just ready to kill whomever goes against him. These people were, were evil people. Remember, they were uh, serving a pantheon of gods. They had many gods that they served, and these gods were all in opposition to the one true and living God. And so God was actually commanding Israel to do it because of, of the nature of these people. The first reason I think that, we sh- that God uh, destroyed everything, or why, why should they destroy everything? Why should these people obey God? Well, first of all, because God commanded it. In Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 16 through 18, you can look that up later, we find that God has a way in which he wants them to deal with these people in Canaan. He says the people that actually live in the city of Can- or in the, in the country, this, this land of Canaan, I want you to completely destroy them. Wipe them out completely. And here are the reasons why. He says, so that those people may not teach you to do according to all their detestable things, which they had done for their gods, so that you would sin against the Lord your God. You see what the problem is here? The potential problem was that if they did not fully destroy all these Canaanites, what could happen? They could start to uh, implement a lot of their worship practices into their own lives, and now they don't worship their own God like they should. So we should obey God when he tells us to do something, even uh, when it doesn't make sense, because God is the only true God, and he demands that he alone be worshipped. And so God was ultimately giving an indictment on, he was judging the Canaanites through the Israelites. He was wiping them out. Now God obviously could have done this on his own, couldn't he? He could have just completely wiped these people out on his own, but he used the people of Israel to do it. And so we know that God is the one who ultimately did it because in verse 2 of chapter 6 it says, The Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand. It was God that was the one who was ultimately responsible for destroying the Canaanites. And his twofold purpose for destroying them were these. Number one, to, pers- to pursue or to punish Canaan for their sin. And number two, to preserve Israel's religious purity. To punish Canaan for their sin because they were a wicked people. But to also preserve Israel so that they would not get involved in those pagan practices. And so we find that, that the people obeyed God fully. And they did it to the point where they, they even uh, stayed true to their promise, their covenant that they had with Rahab, and they protected her. And so we see the outcome of this battle in verses 22 through 27. God fulfills his promise to protect Rahab. God spared not only Rahab because of her hiding of the spies, 
but he also spared Rahab's family and all of her possessions. And we find in verse 23 that they take Rahab outside the camp. Look at verse 23. It says, So the young men who were spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and her mother and her brothers and all she had. They also brought out her relatives and placed them outside the camp of Israel. Now the reason that they would take a Gentile outside the camp of Israel because was because that she was ceremonial, ceremonially unclean. And so she needed a period of time where she could um, take part in these ritual sacrifices to become clean and then be added to the people of Israel. And we find in these verses that, that Rahab still lives among Israel to this day, to the time of Joshua writing this, which was 40 years later. So it's amazing to see how God used someone as wicked as Rahab to accomplish his purpose to protect his people, and then ultimately to protect Rahab and all that she had. The next thing we see is that Jericho now becomes a solitary city. A solitary city. And we see that in verse 26 when God um, brings down a curse upon them. It says, Then Joshua made them take an oath at that time, saying, Cursed before the Lord is the man who rises up and builds the city Jericho. And notice what happens if someone does try to build Jericho back up. With the loss of his firstborn, he shall lay its foundation. And with the loss of his youngest son, he shall set up its gates. So it becomes a solitary city, meaning nobody is allowed to occupy that city anymore. They're not allowed to rebuild that city at all because it was a representation of, of what God uh, did not want to be a part of Israel. And so he wasn't talking here to to Canaanites, that they cannot build the city up again. He was talking to Israelites, that you should not build the city up again. And we find a fulfillment of this curse in 1 Kings chapter 16, verses 33 and 34. I'll read them for you. Ahab also made the Asherah pole, which is a goddess uh, that, that the Canaanites served. And now Ahab, King Ahab, was worshiping her. Thus Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel than all the kings of Israel who were before him. In his days, Hiel the Bethelite built Jericho. He laid its foundation. But it was at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn son, and he set up the gates of Jericho with the loss of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. So Joshua said, listen, you are cursed if you set this city up. And it turns out that, yes, indeed, God did curse those who set up the city. So the last thing we see is that Jericho was a celebrated city. A celebrated city. And that starts with a C, but that's all I could figure. Verse 27, we find that Jericho is a celebrated city. So the Lord was with Joshua and his fame was in all the land, not just Jericho, but in all the land of Canaan. Remember, Joshua had been promised to be exalted in chapter 4 and verse 14. God said, I will exalt you. And in fact, he exalted him through the crossing of the Jordan because Israel looked at Joshua and said, Wow, what a great leader. What a great follower of God. But now, not only was Joshua just recognized as a great man among Israel... Verse 27 tells us that Joshua was famous in all the land. Now, why would God revere 
Joshua. Why would God cause these people to revere Joshua, I should say? It's because Joshua was the one who led this army against this incredibly difficult city to defeat. And I think the most important reason why we can say that the people revered Joshua was the first part of that verse, verse 27. So the Lord was with Joshua. It was because God was the one doing it through him. And so we can take confidence that God will do great things through us when we trust him, when we simply obey him. So we have the benefit of knowing what happens in, in this story. But I think that the important thing that we need to see is that um, there are three ways in which we should be able to apply this to our lives. Number one, the city of Jericho was defeated by quiet, faithful perseverance. Quiet, faithful perseverance. We live in a fast-paced society, don't we? If we want our food heated up, we put it in a microwave. If we want to have food prepared for us, we go to a drive-thru. If we want to watch our favorite show, we put it on TiVo. We have a fast-paced society. And yet, when it comes to obeying God, when it comes to growth in Jesus Christ, we expect all that to happen very fast. We'll just pop our lives into the spiritual microwave and zap, we're now a, a mature believer. But no, God requires simple, quiet perseverance. A simple following of God. Number two, when we submit our thoughts and strategies to God, he will show himself strong. When we submit our thoughts and strategies to God, he will show himself strong. We don't need to know the outcome. And that's usually one of the obstacles that we have to obedience. Well, we don't really know what God's going to do here, so I'll wait for him to tell me. God's ways are higher than our ways. Just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so God's ways are higher than ours. And we should submit ourselves to God's ways. Because sometimes if we knew the outcome, we may not follow him the way that he wants us to. He wants us to put our trust in him. In fact, sometimes when we know the outcome, what happens? We don't need God anymore. We don't need to depend on God anymore. We set him aside. So we submit our thoughts and strategies to God, then he will show himself strong. Number three, all genuine victory comes from God. All genuine victory comes from God. Joshua may have led them into battle. He may have done all the right things that God told him to do, but it was ultimately God that brought down those walls. It was ultimately God that was destroying those people. And so... The point is for us is that, yes, God has called us to do something. He has called us to be made into the image of Christ, to follow after him in godliness, but ultimately it is he who wins the battle. It is he who has the victory in our life. It's not difficult to see that it, it, it was God that won this battle of Jericho. And when God promises victory and he prescribes the course to that victory, and those who believe the promise 
and follow that course that he has prescribed for them will receive the victory. Do you want to follow God? Do you want to submit your ways to God? You should because God is worthy of being served and because he is powerful to conquer. No matter what type of, of difficulty or trial you are going through, he will be the one that conquers when we put our trust in him. Let's bow together for prayer. Our Father, we are grateful for how we can see your hand at work in the lives of the Israelites as they defeated the, the people of Jericho. And we're also grateful that we, we can see your hand at work in our own lives. As we deal with different situations, we may not have some huge impregnable city that we have to go up against, but we do uh, fight against uh, the spiritual forces of wickedness that have been put into this world by Satan who is completely opposed to what you are doing. <clears throat> and it's easy for us to question you, to give up in battle. We pray that you'd help us to have strength in battle and the, the ability and the willingness to just follow you, to simply obey even when uh, the method seems to be foolish to us. Because we know that you are wise and that you have all knowledge and that you uh, should be followed because you are a great God of wisdom and knowledge. Help us to submit to you this week. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.